My journey to becoming a Unitarian Universalist <clears throat> started when I was moving from Milwaukee to the Fox Valley for a new job, and I was apartment hunting on a very cold Sunday in November, colder than this one. I knew that I wanted to find a spiritual home as well as an apartment, so I did a little home homework on where the UUs lived in the area. In between looking at apartments, I stopped in for a service at the fellowship. The service was held at the old Superior Street location at the time. And like many of you, I fell in love. I formally joined the fellowship a few weeks later. Then I fell in love in another way, having met the woman who would become my wife, Julie, at a fellowship service. My wife and I moved away after we were married for new jobs in Milwaukee. Having both retired, we very happily came back to the Fox Valley and to the fellowship. One of the reasons I love being a Unitarian Universalist is our freedom as a non-credal church to pursue our individual and group free and responsible search for meaning. My own personal search experience has led me to embrace humanism as my life philosophy. The American Humanist Association has defined human as, quote, a progressive philosophy of life that, without theism or other supernatural belief, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good, end quote. From time to time over the coming weeks, our worship services, like today's, will focus on the topic of spiritual practices. Spiritual is one of what I like to think of as Rorschach words. These are words that, like the famous inkblot psychological test, have many possible meanings and tend to reveal a lot about a person's subjective experience and perspective. Spiritual certainly is a word associated with traditional belief in God and the supernatural. So what does a humanist, at least this humanist, who does not hold to such a worldview, do with such a word and a concept? One option is outright rejection. That's not a very creative option, and it creates a significant gap in any humanist vocabulary. I have found a helpful perspective on the word spiritual in a book written by Robert C. Solomon entitled Spirituality for the Skeptic. Dr. Solomon subtitled his book, quote, The Thoughtful Love of Life, end quote, which phrase he went on to promote as his definition of spiritual throughout the rest of this work. One of the passages in the book that I found particularly insightful is this. Spirituality, at least, is not primarily a matter of beliefs, although it certainly involves beliefs. It is rather a way, a great way, or a great many ways, of experiencing the world, of interacting with other people in the world. It involves a set of practices and rituals, not necessarily prayer, or church services, or meditation, or prescribed rituals of purification, but any number of ways, whether individual or collective, of thinking, looking, talking, feeling, moving, and acting. 
So the term spiritual does not necessarily have to exclusively tie into a worldview that includes a god, gods, or the supernatural. Spiritual can also mean the great many ways of experiencing the world, of living, of interacting with other people in the world. In other words, paying thoughtful attention to the deepest dimensions and experiences of life. So spiritual practice in this light can mean anything that promotes and develops our attention and thoughtfulness with regard to the wonderful details of life and our world, such as music, writing, nature, service to others. In an article on Beyond Belief, a website of All Souls Church, UU Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a fellow UU, Earl Goodman Jr., lists his spiritual practices as a humanist as his involvement in the civil rights movement, music, primarily jazz, work, volunteer activities, group activities, and he says those, what he means by that is line dancing and Friday lunch at Maxwell's. He concludes by noting, quote, but the most spiritual humanistic activities of all are lots of personal interactions that I hope make people happy to be around me. My list of such spiritual practices would include walks in nature with my wife, watching movies with her, cooking, taking care of and playing with our cats, helping out with the Hope Fridge in Nina, reading philosophy, making lunch and playing with our grandson during his weekly visits. I'm hoping along with Earl that these things make people happy to be around me. If these things are done with thoughtful love, they are spiritual practices. I wonder, what are yours? Our sermon this morning is given by the Reverend Denise Colley, who serves a couple congregations in the Milwaukee area, and she's joining us via the magic of video. So enjoy her sermon. It's entitled Pathetic Spiritual Practice. Oh, and uh, you might, if you have a pen handy, you might want to take it out now um, because she's going to invite you to write things down. But if you don't, no pressure. You can just hold them in your mind. When my son was born, many people visited and were often full of advice. And while much of the advice was kind and helpful, one person who came to visit was an old professor of mine who gave me a lesson I never forgot. Her story is one I have told over and over and certainly built upon over the years. I'd long been done with college and she and I had become friends and colleagues over the years. During her visit, we walked around the house and I showed her the quilts and the clothes and the decor that I had made for my baby. She held my son, rocking and talking to him and then she looked at my then wife and I and said, I can tell by who you are and how you do everything else that you're going to be first class moms. You will do motherhood with zeal and participate in parenting with enthusiasm. I know you are cloth diapering and breastfeeding. You are the kind of moms who will make their own baby food you will go on field trips. You will be involved in homework and clubs. 
You will make big sacrifices for him to take him to classes and make sure he has a great education. You will move other things out of your life so that you can fully immerse yourselves in parenting. I'm going to tell you something, she said. You need to take care of yourselves. You need to go on dates. You need to walk or exercise. Aim for pathetic. Pathetic dates, pathetic walks, pathetic exercise. Have pathetic sex, she said. At least then you know you're doing those things. If you aim for pathetic, you can at least say you did them. If all you have to achieve is pathetic, it makes approaching the things you do for yourself a lot easier. You might achieve more than pathetic. You might not. If your goal is pathetic, you will accomplish it. If you aim to do everything in life with the same triumphant manner that you approach parenting, you might not do it at all. Aim for pathetic. I was stunned by this conversation. I couldn't believe that the best I could hope for was pathetic. I really didn't understand then how many years parenting would be all-consuming. I didn't know then that my family would have many, many stresses that would come along in the next decades. Along the way, I figured out that my old professor was right. I needed to do the things I wanted to do, but pathetically. Over the years, I'd tried to keep up various spiritual practices. I'd tried walking and meditating, praying, writing, journaling, swimming, doing yoga, tai chi, exercise, jazzercise, sewing, quilting, learning to knit, and probably 20 other things I can't even recall. Some lasted years, some months, some weeks. I would reminisce about why I wasn't doing all the things, and I felt like a failure. Why did I quit? In all of these activities, I had aimed high. I had tried doing actions that took two or more hours at a time, multiple times a week. I often loathed myself for not keeping up with lap swimming or sewing. I missed yoga. And quilting is a love. Why couldn't I keep doing them, I wondered. With parenting and working and ministry and all the unexpected things in life, setting aside six to ten hours a week is unreasonable to sustain. None of these practices took into account how to do them when illness, stress, or death happened. And frankly, when do you need spiritual practice more than then? None of them were flexible enough, not the way I set them up. I couldn't take them with me on the road. If I had to travel or work extra hours, they vanished from my repertoire. This just left me lacking the benefit of spiritual practice, and it left me feeling guilty and punishing myself with self-deprecating thoughts of failure. When I started seminary and went into ministry, 
one of the first lectures I heard was How to Begin a Spiritual Practice by Reverend Dr. Arvid Strabe. It was required that every seminarian have a spiritual practice. I contemplated my failed attempts and realized I could only attain this if I did it pathetically. Pathetic effort, I should maybe even say pathetic effort would be my goal. Short intervals with repetition. Now what is spiritual practice? You might hear that phrase thrown around a lot. Spiritual practice is an activity where your mind can wander, where repetition of sound, movement, prayer, or meditation can allow your mind to wander. The easiest way to think of it is that the activity is such that it can be done without concentration. Then the spiritual practice is one that can be done repeatedly, multiple times a day or week, in order to truly benefit. If you've ever driven somewhere and don't recall how you got there, you had your first taste of spiritual practice. If an idea came to you when you washed dishes, weeded a garden, or took a walk on a familiar path, and your mind worked out something that you'd been concerned with, you received the benefit of spiritual practice. Frequently, parents will tell me they get their best ideas when they have a moment alone in the bathroom. Your mind has wandered in the shower. Perhaps that's when you whet your appetite for spiritual practice. Now, how do you go from something being happenstance to a practice that you benefit from? First, you have to pick a spiritual practice or a couple. Try not to think of them as hobbies you have. They're things that are truly in the mindset of spiritual practice. They have to be things that you can do anywhere. Meditation or prayer need no tools or supplies and are completely portable. There are even apps available to help you and thousands of books at the library. Writing in a journal upon waking and bedtime is a really simple tool. One of my friends purposely writes each evening, changing her handwriting style to change her mind. Often to make it a practice, you would commit to one page a day or one page at each instance. You write whether you know what to write or say or not. You just commit to moving your pen across the page. Maybe you want to walk or do some form of exercise. Ideally, you want to do something that doesn't require you to think too hard. I've noticed I cannot walk on rocky paths where I have to concentrate on my steps or I don't have that benefit of my mind emptying and the repetition of my feet lulling me into meditation. Even when I walk along beaches along Lake Michigan, I find myself returning to the same paths I know. This way, my thoughts can drift and the repetition of the lake lapping up on the shore will melt away the noise of ministry, family, work, and other commitments that are occupying my head. It lets them melt away. 
Remember, you want a pathetic goal when you start. Now, I know that some people say, well, I come from the greatest generation and we do everything the best. And I'm asking you to set that notion aside right now. Set it aside because that creates an environment that you can't always achieve. Now, sometimes I give out a worksheet for doing this. You want to think about opening your phone right now or jotting something down on the order of service about doing your spiritual practice. You wanna be really judicious in your goal. Keep it simple. How many times a week will you do it? Jot down ideas as I speak if you want. Frequently, it's more important to have the frequency be often rather than a long duration. For it to be a practice rather than something you do once in a while, it really has to be done consistently. It has to have a modest goal. You want to know that you can achieve this goal. It has to be reasonable. So for example, rather than telling yourself that you will meditate twice a day for a half hour at each time, get realistic or pathetic. It takes at least six to eight weeks for a new habit to be established. Try making your goal 10 minutes, five times a week. Write that down. You can always go longer. It really helps to have support. And that's one of the great things about being a member of a community like this. Who can be your spiritual practice accountability buddy? Some people want to have a teacher or a coach or they gather spiritual friends or a spiritual director they sign up with in order to be accountable. These are great things that you can do in this community. You could also pair with another congregant and they could be your accountability buddy. Developing a spiritual practice is a goal that you pursue to deepen your faith. A lot of people join a community because they want community or they heard about Unitarian Universalism being a place that, that practice social justice. But in order to be in the best mindset to do those kinds of things, to be in community and to be deep in our own spiritual development, we need a spiritual practice. These things all go hand in hand. Sometimes I only walk for 10 minutes I might see the lake, I might just walk down the block, I look at the trees, I examine some leaves, and I move on. When I started practicing spiritual practice, practicing, trying to learn about it, I realized that the more I did it, not the longer I did it, not the longer duration, the more often I did it, the more I grasped the deepening. It felt good. I'd try it again. Ideas would come and I'd feel refreshed. I started to realize the gift of pathetic spiritual practice. Occasionally, I'd spend longer. Yet regardless of the time, I would feel that magic of meditation. I would rest and be refreshed from the waves lapping over my feet. 
And we all know that with the pandemic that has happened, that we have needed spiritual practice. We have needed that deepening. And you can get all this in just 10 minutes. If you have been interested in a deeper, richer life, this is the next stage of your development. Meditation of all sorts has been shown in many studies to be the practice standard of excellence for the deepest and most effective way to achieve deep personal transformation. New brain imaging technology can actually show how meditation remodels our brains. Practiced regularly over time, this creates calmer, kinder, less reactive human beings and generates a sense of thriving and well-being less impacted by stress. Trying meditation practice of any form could be the foundation of your spiritual practice. You're ready to jot some things down? Consider some of these meditative practices. You want to jot some things down that you think you could commit to today, this week, and for the next month. You want to ideally come up with things that you could do at least five times a week. Aim for pathetic. Writing, journaling, art, dance, or music practice. Strength training, weightlifting, meditation. Now remember, there's a big payoff there prayer, mindful yoga, sacred song and chanting, sacred dance, mantra practices, knitting or crocheting, embroidery, wood carving, sculpting, drawing, painting, woodworking, yoga, Pilates, cardio training, balanced diet and conscious eating, chopping vegetables, raking, tai chi, martial arts, sports, dance. Now that you've dotted, jotted one or two practices down, note for yourself how often and how long you could do it for. Five minutes each morning, 10 minutes each night. Remember, if it helps your spiritual practice, take on a couple of forms. Sometimes you need some things that you can do at home and some things you can do in other parts of your life. Remember, aim for pathetic. When you do your spiritual practice, mark the date and time and duration down. Keep it somewhere where you can see it, inside your bathroom cabinet, on the kitchen counter. Try to make it a habit. Many of you may be in a meeting with me someday and you might see how I draw during meetings. Often my drawings are very quick. I might draw for 10 minutes at a time. I've learned that by doing that I can hear and process information better when I'm moving my hands and making marks across the paper. I walk in nature. I take a lot of photos when I walk and later I draw what I photographed. I often stop and meditate while I'm in nature. I also have a gratitude practice and prayer ritual that I do with my son. When the weather is bitter cold, I might only get outside for a few minutes. I try to even go outside if it's sub-zero weather. 
It might be a really short practice that day, but I'll snap a few photos and then I go back to my drawings when I'm inside. This keeps me practicing regardless of weather. I've also implemented little tiny spiritual practices that are seasonal. For example, when the lilac bushes are blooming at my house, I make it a habit to go out sometimes five times a day just to smell the lilacs. It's a wonderful little reset. You want pathetic spiritual practices. It is important to remember that you cannot really be spiritual by yourself. We crave and need community. That's why it's so important to keep up and be involved in our membership of our different communities like this fellowship or church. American ideas of accomplishing everything alone is the antithesis of what our spirit craves and sets us up for failure. Human beings are social creatures. To develop human capabilities and potentials connecting with others is imperative. Trying to be spiritual alone skips the checks and balances that practicing in a community can bring. Do you swim in a class? Do you see friends at the Y or the yoga studio? Do they miss you when you are absent? Could you share your spiritual practice check sheet with a friend once a week? Could you put pictures of your spiritual practice or your walks on social media and make a hashtag for yourself to help you continue practicing? It is also difficult to sustain a practice without support. Consider joining a soul circle, a chalice circle, a covenant group, a spiritual reading group, meditation groups, Buddhist chanting groups, singing, choirs, and more. Check on a way for you to have a spiritual practice in community. This is where we really expect one another to help each other to keep up our practice. As the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh said, a lone practitioner is an axe practitioner. Often creating an altar helps remind you of your spiritual practice. This doesn't have to be elaborate. Maybe you put someone's name down on a card that you're holding an intention for or an event. Maybe you put reminders of the seasons on it. I like to have my pathetic spiritual practice include cards and quotes inside my medicine cabinet. I put special mementos from worship services or little reminders of things we've done in the church around my computer. That's a little form of an altar. Perhaps you take a sentimental dish and you recycle slips of paper and write or place intentions on it each morning. Children can help decorate stones representing each of the seven principles. Families could put a jar on the kitchen table. Couples can do this too. You can do this alone. Write something each day that you're thankful for. Start with this Thanksgiving and holiday season. Do something where you start to say, okay, every day I will put down something I am thankful for, no matter how small or pathetic it might be. Google home altar and the internet will return millions of ideas. Pinterest can be your friend. The authors Murphy and Leonard write, 
In the book, The Life We Are Given, when wisely pursued, such practices bestow countless blessings. If we do not obsess about their results, they make us vehicles of grace and reveal unexpected treasures. In this, they often seem paradoxical. They require time, for example, but frequently make more time available to us. They can slow time down and open us up to timeless moments from which we have arisen. They require sacrifice, but they restore us. While demanding relinquishment of established patterns, they open us up to new love, new awareness, and new energy. What we lose in time might be replaced by new joy, beauty, and strength. They require effort, but become effortless. Demanding commitment, they eventually proceed like second nature. They need a persistent will, but after a while, they flow unimpeded. Where they are hard to start, they eventually cannot be stopped. Where they are hard to start, they eventually cannot be stopped. I urge you to begin your spiritual practice or recommit to one, today even. Remember the advice of my old professor, aim for pathetic. Spiritual enlightenment comes to us when we are in action, even if just for five minutes. Aim for pathetic. The results will be, I promise you, anything but.